Today I'm continuing a series talking about Christian philosophy. And a philosophy is a way of thinking, a system of thought, a paradigm, a mindset, a worldview. And we've been talking about how that you have to have these basic foundation principles to be able to interpret all of the things that happen to us and things like this. So we've already talked about the importance of the Word of God and how that that is the foundation of all of our thinking. And I've been using the passages of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, where Satan came against Adam and Eve, and instead of overpowering them with some humongous threatening beast, instead he came and slyly, craftily, he came to deceive them with words because Satan can't make you do anything. All he can do is plant seeds in your thoughts and then you have to violate God's plan for your life on your own. Nobody else can exempt you from it. So we talked about that. We also said how the very first thing that Satan did was come against the Word. He has to get us to back up, compromise the Word in some way. If we don't ever change from what the Word of God says, and we just say, no, this is what the Bible says, and I'm not going to do that because the Bible says don't do it. If that's the attitude that you had, Satan could never get us to do anything. You know, if you would just be honest, many of you went through rebellion, and you rebelled at your parents, rebelled at society, rebelled at all of these things. You knew what the right thing was, but you had to make a conscious decision to reject that to say, I don't care what I've been told, I don't care what's right or wrong, here's what I want. And you had to make a conscious decision. And I'm sure that if you'd be honest, you can remember that threshold the first time you broke through and did something. And after a while, after you do it repeated number of times, you get to where you deaden your conscience to it. But the very first few times, I guarantee you, you knew that you were doing something seriously wrong. And that's the exact same Um, process that happened to Adam and Eve. Satan had to come against their knowledge of what right and wrong was based on what God had told them. So he attacked the Word of God. He said in the last part of this third chapter of Genesis, verse 1, he says, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You know, before I go on with this and make my other points, let me just point out something here. Satan... If he would have approached Adam and Eve this way, let's say, for instance, that there was 10,000 trees in the Garden of Eden. There's probably a lot more than that. But if there was 10,000 trees in the Garden of Eden, what do you think would have happened if he would have come and he said, has God only allowed you to eat of 9,999 of the 10,000 trees in the Garden? Just the very way that that is phrased, see, it would have been a reminder of how good God was and how that God had only forbidden one tree out of all creation that they couldn't eat of it. But see, instead of him putting things into their proper perspective, Satan came and he says, Has God uh, not allowed you to eat of every tree? Satan took the one thing in all of creation that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to do, and he magnified that. And I tell you, that's exactly the same way that he comes against us. Instead of telling us all of the good things that God has done. Maybe, for instance, you know, if you can remember when you were younger, or maybe you're young now, but your friends are wanting to tempt you to get into doing something that you know you shouldn't do. 
But they will come and they'll begin to say, man, it, this, you know, Christianity, this religion, your morals, it doesn't let you do anything. And they will overstate it and make it sound like that you are such an abused, neglected, hurt person. You know what? So what if there was one tree out of 10,000 or 100,000 that God had forbidden them to eat of? They should have just let it go. Who cares? But Satan got them to focus on the one thing in all of the universe that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to do. They were blessed beyond measure. They had zero restrictions on them except one thing, and that was don't eat of this tree. So he focused on that one thing. And here was the woman's answer in verse 2. It says, The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you know that that is not what God said? Now, it was similar, but it wasn't what God said. Look back in Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. The Lord said they would surely die. Eve said we can't eat of it or touch it lest we die. There is a potential. There was a warning that we might die. She wasn't as absolute and sold on this as what God said. Notice also that in verse 3 she says, We can't even touch it lest we die. The Lord didn't say that. The Lord didn't forbid them from touching this tree. He didn't want them eating of the fruit. Now here's another point that I think will help you. And that is that you can't add to what God has said. You can't subtract from it and you can't add to it. I believe that when you start adding to what God has said and embellishing in it, then you're setting yourself up for a major fall. For instance, here's some examples. When I was raised as a young boy, I was raised in a denomination that was very strict. They wouldn't allow men to have long hair at all. If the hair of a man touched the collar on his shirt, you went directly to hell. You did not pass go. You didn't get $200. I mean, that was an absolute no-no. And you know what? They based that on a passage of Scripture out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it says, Doesn't nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair, but it's a glory for a woman to have it? And Paul took a custom of the day and he was making an example. And he taught a lesson. But that wasn't his approval on the custom. As a matter of fact, it says at the end of that discourse after he's made his point, he says, but if anybody wants to be contentious about this, we don't have any such customs, not in the church of the Lord. In other words, he was saying, I was just using this illustration to make a point. And yet, people have come along and they have taken something that took this example about a man having short hair, a woman having long hair, and there are religious groups that have made a rule out of this and damn you to hell if a man has long hair and damns a woman to hell if she has short hair. And they have gone and made something out of this that the Word did never do. So what that does, people who are raised in that... Now, this isn't my reaction, but many of my friends reacted this way. They saw these standards that you are going to hell if you do this and this and this. And then the culture began to change. 
and you begin to start seeing some hippies who really loved God, fanatically loved God, and their hair was down past, past their shoulders. And you know what happened to a lot of people? They said, well, I can tell that that person loves God, that that person has had a changed life. They've come out of drugs, alcohol, sexual perversion. They love God, and yet they've got long hair. Therefore, the standards I've been taught are all wrong. And so they take the embellishment that religion made on something and because of that wind up rejecting the whole thing and say you can't trust the Word of God. The truth is you can trust the Word of God. You just can't trust all of the additions that religion has added to it. And see, that's what Eve did. She says, we can't eat of the fruit, neither can we touch it lest we die. God didn't say that. Eve said that. And you find down here in the sixth verse of Genesis chapter 3, it says, uh, and the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, comma, and did eat. The way that this is written, the punctuation shows that she first of all reached out and touched the fruit and held it. And when nothing happened, when she didn't die, when nothing terrible happened, then she was emboldened to go ahead and eat it. See, this is the way that it is. People will, they will violate some religious standard and then find out that, you know what, I didn't die, it didn't destroy my life, and that'll just make them say, well, then all religion is wrong, and they'll throw out the truth of the Word of God along with religion. You know, I believe that religion is the biggest enemy to Christianity and to true belief in the Bible. You've had some weirdos come along and take one little passage of Scripture out of context and take a word and make a paragraph out of it and do all of these things. And today we have a lot of people rebelling at religion, which I agree with them that religion is killing people. It means to bind. It's not positive. But the foundation, the truth that God spoke about, don't eat of the tree because you will surely die, that was absolutely true. It wasn't true that if they just touched the tree they'd die. But that's what Eve added to it, and that was a part of the deception. And that's one of the reasons that she went ahead and finally ate of the fruit, because she touched it first and nothing happened. We need to get to where we just stick with what God's Word says. And then the thing that I'm pointing out right now is that when Satan came to Adam and Eve and tempted them, he came against the Word of God, and Eve admitted that God had said that you shall not eat of the fruit uh, of the tree, lest you die. But in verse 4, it says, The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. You know what that was? That was a total lie. It was a total criticism, an attack on what God had said. God had said, In the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. Satan said, That's not true. You won't die. Of course, we know in retrospect that God was true and Satan wasn't. But you know, this should have ended the argument right here. Eve should have just said, that's it, I'm through, end of discussion. When you call God a liar, and when you say that what He said in His Word isn't true, that's the end of it. But you know, to her discredit, she went ahead and listened to the serpent. And the serpent went on to say, For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. So he began to criticize God's integrity and say that God really doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's keeping this tree from you because he doesn't want you to experience your full potential. But before we get into all of that, I'm going to be talking about this 
a little bit more in detail. But here's something that is a foundational truth. It is a philosophy that I have. And this philosophy came through meditating in the Word of God. But I have come to a place to where Jesus is the absolute Lord of my life. He died for me. He paid everything. He told me what He expects, what He wants me to do. And to the best of my ability, I'm trying to conform to it and live what the Lord has told me to do. And in my own heart, I have just run up a white flag. I have surrendered and I have made Jesus the Lord of my life. If you have been quote unquote born again, you probably have had Romans chapter 10 verse 9 quoted to you when you got saved. That verse says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It says that if you will confess him as Lord, you shall be saved. And many of us have gone through the motions of saying Jesus is Lord, but it has to be more than just words that you mouth. It has to be a heartfelt commitment that is so deep on the inside of you, it begins to change the way you think and the way that you act. And there's a lot of people, I believe, that you know it's become semi-popular to say that you're born again. It automatically it makes the people on the extreme right, the fanatics, according to some people, embrace you when you start saying that you're born again. And so it's kind of play in the field. It can work to your advantage. But I tell you what, when a person says that Jesus is their Lord and yet everything they do is directly in opposition to what God told us to do, it just makes me wonder if that's a heartfelt commitment. I'm not the final judge and jury, but I am convinced that there's a lot of people who claim that they've made Jesus their Lord, but they haven't. If Jesus is your Lord, if you have truly run up a white flag and have committed your life and turned it over and said, Lord, it's not my choices. It's not what I want, but it's what you want for me. If you've truly done that, then you know what? It's going to affect the way that you live your life. Let me put it back on Eve right here. Now, of course, Eve didn't have a revelation of Jesus, but she knew God the Father. She walked and talked with Him every day in the cool of the evening. If Eve had made God her Lord and Master, and if she just was committed to Him as being absolute supreme authority, did you know that this temptation would have ended right here? The moment that Satan says, God didn't really mean this. It's not true. What he says won't come to pass. Here's what was he was really thinking. That would have ended the temptation right there if she would have just made this decision that, you know what, it's not up to me to sit there and tell God what he can and what he cannot tell me, but I am supposed to submit. Here is a real oversimplification of one of the foundational truths in the Bible, and that is that there is only one God and you are not Him. Now that's just real simple theology, but it is absolutely true. There is only one God and you aren't Him. Therefore, you do not have the right and the privilege to run your life however you choose to. And I know that I'm offending a lot of people, especially those of us that live in free societies where nobody tells me what to do. And we pride ourselves on being a self-made man or woman. But you know what? You really aren't. You were created by a creator. He has a claim on your life. 
He wants you. And without Him, you're going to die and go to hell. You can do nothing without Him is what Jesus said in John chapter 15. Without me, you can do nothing. Jesus said that. The truth is you are not a self-made man or woman. You were made to be dependent upon a Creator. It was meant to be a voluntary dependency. God didn't force it on you. You have the choice to do things your own way, but the end of that choice is death. Because God loves you, He told you. He set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Deuteronomy 30, 19, He says, choose life. He gave you a choice, but He told you that the right choice is to choose Him, to be dependent upon Him. And so, if you're one of these that's going about and saying, I can do whatever I want to, and it's up to me, and you're just picking and choosing, you don't feel any responsibility to God to find out what the call on your life is, why you were created, why you're here. You don't care about anybody else. It's all just for you. You're going to get all you can, can all you get, and then sit on the can and forget everybody else. You don't give a rip about anybody but yourself. You know what you're doing? You have put yourself in the position of God. You have assumed Godhead in your own life. You don't find yourself accountable to anybody. And you know what? There's even some Christians that have trusted God as far as being your Savior, but you haven't made Him your Lord and Savior. You've accepted His offer of forgiveness of sins and you're trusting that you're going to heaven, but you don't have a real commitment or a desire for Him to be absolute Lord, Master, Dictator over your life. You resent the fact of anybody, even God, controlling you. And you know what? If that's the way that you are, that basically is what Satan prayed on right here with Adam and Eve. He came to them saying, you know what? God is trying to oppress you. You could be like God. You could take the position of God. You can start choosing for yourself. Who told you that you can't eat of a tree? Well, God, their Creator, told them. And if they would have truly have been submitted unto Him as their Lord and Master, that would have ended it right there and saying, look, I'm not God. I didn't create me. I didn't start this thing. It doesn't matter what His reasons are for telling me something. Whatever they are, He's God. And I'm going to submit to Him. You know, I've had people come to me before and they make statements like, well, I wouldn't serve a God who wouldn't prosper you financially. I wouldn't serve a God who wouldn't heal. I wouldn't do this. And in a sense, what they're saying is they, have, they are going to make a decision on whether they serve God or not based on whether they like the way He does things. If He will do things the way they want, well, then they'll serve Him. But if God asks something of them that they don't want to give, they wouldn't serve a God like that. You know what? That's not my attitude at all. I actually was told in the denomination that I grew up in that God's the one that killed my dad when I was 12 years old. God needed him in heaven more than I need him. I was told that God was the one who made my life miserable, that it was him mad at me because I wasn't holy enough and I hadn't done this and this and this. I was told a lot of wrong things about God. And now it's a tremendous blessing in my life to find out that God's a good God and that God isn't the one who killed my dad and God doesn't want to punish me and God isn't making my life miserable. But my point is, I made an absolute commitment. I ran up a white flag. I yielded control of my life to Jesus when I thought He was the one who was making my life miserable and put sickness on me to teach me something and killed my father and did those things. 
I made an absolute commitment. And some people say, how could you do that? Because there's only one God and I'm not Him. I didn't come and say, God, I'll serve you if you're like this. It turns out that God is better than my wildest imagination. God is pure good. God is not bad. God's a good God and I'm thankful for it. But you know what? He is God. And if He was an ogre, if He was a tyrant, He's still God. And we, as His creation, should bow the knee and serve Him. And yet there is not that attitude in a lot of people. There's a lot of people that are angry at God. I just can't understand this. First of all, they don't know the true God. They've been lied to by religion and told that God's the source of their problems. None of that stuff is true. But even if it was true that God had done these things, what right do you have to be angry at God? God is God. You are His creation. And I tell you, a foundational philosophy in the Christian life is you need to come to a place where you quit trying to be God and you recognize there's only one God, you aren't Him, and you need to bow the knee to God Almighty and repent of your exaltation of yourself and your own wisdom and your own desires above His. And you need to humble yourself. If Adam and Eve would have just made a decision that, you know what, I am not God. God is God. God is the Creator. It's not up to me to pick and choose how the rules work and make my own rules and change it if I don't like it. I, if they would have known their place and if they would have bowed the knees and have just said that, God, you are God, and I don't care why you told me not to eat of this tree... You told me, you're God, I'm submitting. If they would have had that attitude, did you know Satan could not have got them to eat of this tree? He could not have brought them into this temptation. But they actually wavered in their absolute commitment to the lordship of God, the control, the mastery of God. And so the positive lesson we can learn from this is that if you want to foil all of Satan's temptations against you and stop him in his tracks, you need to make a commitment that the Word of God is accurate, that the things said in here, the instructions that were given, are not the great suggestions, but they're the commandments, and that we just ought to bow the knee and do it. And you don't necessarily have to figure out and understand why God told us to do what He did. You know, I think that there's some experiences that we have in life that help us to understand this more than others. And one of the experiences that I had was when I got drafted and I was uh, sent to basic training and then eventually wound up in Vietnam. I remember when I was in basic training, the very first day we were there, the drill sergeant came out and started yelling at us and cussing us and giving us a hard time and making our life miserable. And those approximate eight weeks that I was in basic training, those drill sergeants went out of their way to just make our life miserable. They took opportunities. Every time they could, they criticized us. And they they were just, they seemed like terrible, angry, bitter people. And they may have been. You know, they didn't let you get real close to them. But I mean, they did things. We had, uh, anyway, I won't go into all of the details, but we had terrible things. We had race riots. We had bad things happen. When I was there, people were killed in the group. I mean, killed by other soldiers in that basic training. There were some bad things going on. And uh, one day, 
I just, this drill sergeant was just treating people terribly. He got a guy who, um, you know, we were standing in formation real early in the morning, and it was so early in the morning that this one guy didn't shave properly. He had a real bad case of acne. And so this drill sergeant was had us lined up and was inspecting us, and he went along and saw that this guy, where he had some of these big pimples on his face, hadn't shaved close to him, and he got mad and cussed this guy out and made him go get his razor. And he made that guy dry shave, standing in formation. And when he did, of course, he cut himself, and he began to start bleeding. And that drill sergeant said, What's wrong with this razor? It must not be sharp enough. And he took it on the concrete and rubbed it like that and then made the guy go back. And I mean, this guy was bleeding like a stuck hog. He had blood all over him. It was just harassment. And I couldn't relate to what this had to do with helping us become soldiers. Why they yelled at us, why they screamed at us, and why they did all of this. And one time I got one of those drill sergeants off to the side... And I wasn't being mean or anything. I just asked him. I said, why all of this harassment? Why do you do these things? I said, there's bound to be some reason that I'm not catching. And I actually had this drill sergeant drop his guard and actually open up and share with me. And basically, here's what he said. He says, 99% of all of you guys coming through this basic are going to go directly to Vietnam. And he said, your ability to survive, whether you live through that or not, is dependent on you learning to take orders and getting rid of this independent mindset. You have to become a uh, person who just is told to do something. You know, when you're in battle and your lieutenant tells you, you know, cross that river, get across that bridge now. You can't sit there and debate it and say, well, let's take a vote and decide who wants to do this or give me ten good reasons why I should do this. If that's the way that you do it, you know, the lieutenant is receiving direct commands from probably some observer that's up on a a hill someplace. He can see things that you can't see and he hasn't got time to go around and talk to every person and convince you. You have to get to where you just do things without thinking. That's the reason they take your clothes away and they give you all the way down to your underwear. Your socks are all OD green. They call you a GI, which means government issue. You aren't your own anymore. You belong to them. You lose this individuality. In a sense, you could say that the army becomes your lord and you just do what they tell you without questioning. Now, of course, you could debate whether that's a good thing to submit to the army as your lord. But in a sense... This is exactly what needs to happen in our relationship with God. And see, because of that life experience that I had, and I saw that, you know, we were just being taught to do things so that it was like a second nature. It was an automatic reaction that when you're given an order, you just do this. There's benefit to that. And it's the way that you maintain discipline. It's the only way that you can control large numbers of people. If everybody's going to sit down and do basically what they think, then you really haven't got a commander. You really haven't got somebody controlling you. And an army can't operate that way. Neither can the body of Christ. Neither can you on an individual basis. One of the things that the Bible teaches us, just like I said, there's only one God and you are not Him. And you have to come to a place where, you know what, it's not up to you to evaluate each one of His commands and say, well, I'm not sure I want to do this one. Explain to me why I need to do this. You know, if that's your attitude, you've never made Jesus your Lord. 
you have never bowed the knee. You know, I can tell you by personal example that I got born again when I was eight years old. I loved God. I believe that if I would have died before the time I was 18 when I had this supernatural encounter with God, I believe I would have gone to be with the Lord in heaven. I was truly born again. Salvation was mine. But I hadn't made Jesus the Lord of my life. I was still running and controlling my life. There was things that I, I, I didn't go out and do the overt big sin, such as adultery and murder and stealing and things like that. But to a very large degree, I knew that God wanted me to do things that I wasn't doing, and it was kind of optional with me. They weren't the cardinal, foundational things. I knew that God wanted me to love people more. He wanted me to do a lot of things that I wasn't doing, but it just wasn't in my heart. I loved me more than I loved anybody else. And even though I knew I wasn't everything I was supposed to be, I just didn't care because I was enjoying doing my own thing. But then on March the 23rd, 1968, it's a long story, but God meant with me. I encountered God. God called me up short and revealed to me that I wasn't doing things that He wanted me to do. And even the things I was doing that was correct, such as going out and witnessing and and doing things like this, I wasn't doing it because I loved God. I was doing it for me because I loved me and I wanted the recognition and the pat on the back and I wanted people to think I was somebody special and I was doing it all for me. I wasn't submitted to God. I was a hypocrite. God revealed these things to me and when the Lord did all of that, it's a long story, but the long and the short of it is after seeing things and having a supernatural revelation of this from His standpoint... I ran up a white flag. I committed myself that God from now on, whatever it is that you want me to do, if you wanted me to do something that meant my imminent death, it makes no difference. I submit myself to you. I yield 100%. I made Jesus not only my Savior, but my Lord, absolute Lord and controller of my life. Now, I'll have to admit that at 18 years old, 1968, I didn't understand everything that I was doing, but that was my heartfelt commitment. And to the best of my ability, when God told me to do anything from then on, I mean, there has not been a discussion about it. It's not a matter of, well, I know God wants me to do this, but I really don't want to do it. That hasn't been... I mean, I don't know how to explain it to people, but something changed on the inside of me. I don't have this desire that is contrary to God's desire. If I know for sure that God wants me to do something, I have no qualms with it. I have no arguments, no complaints against it. There isn't my own attitude. And you know, since that time, sure, I've fallen short a million times. And I haven't done what God's wanted me to. But it's been because I didn't see it. I didn't understand it. Because of the weakness of the flesh, I just never perform as well as I could. But I can tell you without any reservation without any hypocrisy or lying in my heart, that I mean for the last 37 years, I have been seeking to do everything that God has told me to do, and that is my commitment, and I do it to the best of my ability. Now, I haven't fulfilled it, but there's no condemnation. God's not mad at me, but I'm just saying that when I made Jesus Lord over my life, it just ended a tremendous amount of conflict. And it changed my life in a heartbeat. It really did. 
And Satan, I believe that when a person just makes this commitment that God, you are my Lord, you've given everything for me, the very least I can do is live for you. And when you make that commitment and just say, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, doesn't matter, it just eliminates a tremendous amount of frustration in your life. It eliminates a lot of things. Satan doesn't have the same inroad into you that he had before. I tell you, it is a major, major commitment. And I think that there's a lot of Christians who have had salvation presented as just a ticket out of hell, a way to get your sins forgiven, but they haven't ever in their heart bowed their heart and made an absolute commitment that Jesus is Lord. Again, I mentioned that I did this concerning making a decision to quit school when I knew it was going to probably send me to Vietnam, could have potentially killed me, but I was will. I mean, it was not something I struggled with, saying, oh God, I don't want to do this, but if you want me to do it, I'll go ahead and do it. No, I didn't have to do it through gritted teeth. The moment I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that that's what God wanted me to do, man, I was ready to go. You know, I could give you a million other examples of this, but I remember when I was in ministry, I'd been in ministry for about 10 years. I had visions of being on television, radio, making a large impact, touching a lot of people's lives. And even though I wasn't seeing success in the sense that most people are called. I mean, I had a church of maybe 80 to 90 people. And that may not sound like a big success to you, but for the first time in my life, I was eating on a regular basis. For the first time in my life, I'd begun to see some prosperity. I could see light at the end of the tunnel, and it wasn't another train. There was actually hope that things were going to get better and that someday I'd be able to minister to more people. I had just started on radio and we were beginning to reach out through radio. This was about 1976. And uh, so that would have been eight years after this encounter with the Lord. I was beginning to see some prosperity. And at that time, the Lord spoke to me and told me that I was supposed to leave that place where I was beginning to see some success and prosperity and move to Pritchett, Colorado. Now, if you had never been to Pritchett, Colorado, you may not fully appreciate what I'm saying, but if that's not the end of the world, you can see it from there. It's that close. <laughs> I mean, it is... There was only 144 people in the whole town. The whole county probably didn't have over three or 4,000 people in this entire county. And it only had a couple of trees in it. And it was flat. This isn't what I thought Colorado was. But, you know, I went there and held a meeting, and during that meeting in this little town, we had ten people in the church. During this meeting, a man died, and I prayed for him, and he was raised from the dead. And the people there at the end of the meetings says, you have turned our entire doctrine, our belief system upside down. We saw this man raised from the dead. We thought all that stuff passed away with the apostles. We don't know where to go from here, and you're just going to come in and hold a meeting and then leave after a week. You can't do this. You need to stay here and teach us the Word of God. And you know, in the natural realm, my flesh did not like Pritchett, Colorado. Matter of fact, the week before when I first drove into that town, Don and Wendy Crow were with us, and I got to joking with Don, and I said, Don... I believe I've got a word from God. God is calling you to preach it, Colorado. <laughs> and I, of course, I was joking and I said, who would live in this God-forsaken place? I said, if this isn't the end of the world, you could see it from here. We talked about that. Within a week, we'd seen this man raised from the dead. 
we had the people tell me, I can't leave, I've got to stay and teach them. And I left there saying, oh, no way. But you know what? I, I had already made this commitment that Jesus is my Lord. And before I got from Pritchett, Colorado, back to Childress, Texas, God had started touching my heart and saying, this is where I want you to go. I want you to go. Leave a church of 90 people, which again, may not sound big to some people, but you've got to remember it's the first time in my life that I had seen a large enough number of people come to where we were finally eating on a regular basis and things were working. And the people in Childress loved me and I didn't want to leave. But I knew that God was speaking to me within a day or two of praying about it. I knew that that's what God wanted me to do. And even though it looked like suicide in a spiritual sense, I mean, who goes into a town of 144 people with a church with 10 people in it? Who goes into there and expects to see their ministry grow and reach large numbers of people? It was 20 or 30 miles, I think it was, to the next town of 1,000 people. That was to the east. To the west, there was a town of 100 people 30 miles away. I mean, it was in the middle of nowhere. And you know what? It looked like spiritual suicide. But I didn't go there with my teeth gritted and heel marks all across the panhandle of Texas. As soon as I knew that that's what God wanted me to do, you know what? I got excited about it. I knew that Jesus wouldn't lead me to do anything terrible. Even if it was the end of my ministry, if I stayed in Pritchett, Colorado the rest of my life, if that's where Jesus wanted me to be, it would be sufficient. And I went there and I was excited. And you know what? It turned out that I loved living in that little town of Pritchett, Colorado. We had a little rent house. It was dirty. It wasn't anything special. But I probably enjoyed that time as much as any place I've ever lived. I mean, it was a blessing. And what I'm saying is that once you make this decision that, God, it's not up to me, you know what, as soon as I could discern that that was God's leading for me, there wasn't struggle, there wasn't strife about it, there wasn't this turmoil, depression, sorrow, and grief. I'm excited about the Lord. And I serve Him to the best of what I can understand that He wants me to do, and I know that God had never lead me to do anything that would damage me or hurt me. And see, that's what making Jesus your Lord is. It can't be just words that you speak, but then you have to be willing to go anywhere, to do anything, to turn away from anything, to give up anything that He wants you to do. And if you say that He's your Lord, and yet you won't follow Him and follow His guidance, then you can say what you want to, but He's not your Lord. He may be your Savior, but He's not your Lord. You know, I hear these testimonies every once in a while where somebody will get up and say, God told me to go speak to this person or God told me to give this offering or God told me to do something and I didn't want to do it and they struggled with it and it's been two weeks, a month or whatever and God just won't let them go and so finally they get up and give a testimony. I am going to do it. I hate it. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. You know what? I think that's a terrible testimony. That's a terrible testimony that you are so in tune to yourself and so in love with yourself that when you clearly understand what God wants you to do, that there's a conflict. There shouldn't even be a question about it. This is not for just the super saints. This is normal Christianity. Normal Christianity. Every single Christian should also make Jesus their Lord as well as their Savior. 
and you could just resolve this conflict. And you may have to go through a period of time where you aren't sure what God's telling you to do, but the moment you understand what the Lord tells you to do, He should be Lord, and that should be the end of it, and you should be excited about it knowing that God's got a good plan. You know, I got off on all of this by saying we were talking about Adam and Eve and see if Eve would have just made a decision that she isn't God, that she was going to submit to the lordship of God the Father. And God told them not to eat of the tree. And when the serpent began to start saying, oh, that's not true, you aren't going to die. Here's what God really meant. That should have ended it right there. She shouldn't have even considered anything contrary to what God told her to do. But basically, you could say that this whole temptation and her susceptibility to it, the the fact that the whole human race was plunged into sin, happened because somebody did not submit to the lordship of God Almighty because they thought their way of thinking was better. I tell you, anybody who thinks that your wisdom is so awesome that you can't trust God to give you and lead you in the right direction and make decisions for you, that you have to make these plans. All you need to do is go back and read what happened to Adam and Eve when they exalted their wisdom above God's. You know, the Scripture says that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You may think that your wisdom is just awesome, You may think that God doesn't understand and that God doesn't have enough sense to tell you what is the right thing to do. God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth with a universe to run, meant with Adam and Eve every single day, showing His favor and His love and His acceptance of them. There was no reason for these people to be angry or bitter at Him or have any distrust in Him whatsoever. And yet she intentionally chose to rebel at what God told her and chose to exalt her own desires and her own reasoning above God's reasoning. Now, on the surface, that sounds so simple. And yet this same thing is being played out a million times every day all around the world. When you go out, when you get to work, you know, it's your business. It's your job. It's your choice as you do what you want to. I'm not saying those things to be mean to you, but I'm saying that, you know what, if that's the attitude that you've got, if this is just going in one ear and out the other, and you aren't letting these words sink down on the inside of you, and if you aren't making a commitment that, God, I want your will for my life, I want to follow you, if you haven't made Jesus the Lord in your life, then you're headed for a failure just as surely as Eve headed for failure here. The moment you exalt your wisdom and your desires above God, you have made a serious mistake. Let me share this passage of Scripture with you out of Jeremiah chapter 10. And I'm not going to take the time to read the entire chapter. You can do that on your own if you'd like. But basically what he's doing is because the children of Israel rebelled at God, did their own thing, the Lord here is prophesying through Jeremiah a total destruction of the nation, that they were going to be taken into captivity, their houses were going to be destroyed, their wives were going to be raped, and children would literally be cut out of their mother's womb, that people would eat their own flesh in the famine, they would kill their children and eat their babies, terrible things happening. And Jeremiah is lamenting all of this. He's called the weeping prophet. He grieved so much over the message that he had to deliver to the nation of Israel 
that he even said, I wished I hadn't have been born. I wish this had never come to pass. He knew what God was telling him, but it grieved him to pronounce this judgment on them. And right in the midst of announcing this judgment in Jeremiah chapter 10, he begins to say, how could this have happened? How could the people who were once favored by God more than any other people who had ever walked on the face of the earth so that God dwelt with them and there was a cloud of fire and a pillar, uh, I mean a pillar of fire and a cloud over them, that a visible representation. He dried up the Red Sea. He did all of these miracles. How could these people who were so blessed by God at one time come to a place where now they were forsaken and judged by God and all this terrible tragedy coming to pass. And he answers his own question in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. And he says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now that is one profound truth right there. See, this ought to be part of your Christian philosophy way of thinking. This ought to be a foundational truth. You ought to get up every morning and say, God, I know that my way isn't in myself. I'm not smart enough to run this day. Father, I want you to give me wisdom and direct my steps today. See, there ought to be this dependency. There ought to be this commitment that, God, what is your will for my life? I want your will. It doesn't matter what my personal goals and ambitions are. Now, there's a balance here because God will direct you and lead you and give you the desires of your heart. So I'm not saying that just because you desire something, it's automatically wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But there ought to be this decision that, God, if there ever becomes a conflict between what you tell me to do and what I want to do or what somebody else wants me to do, that there is no conflict. I make the choice right now in advance that you are absolute Lord of my life and I refuse to let anybody or anything else intimidate me and dominate me. And you know, that's relatively easy to say, but it's a lot harder to live. There's some of you saying, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is Lord. But you know what? Will you do what God tells you to do? Like for instance, if you go to work and there's somebody there who needs Something They've got a sickness in their body or they're discouraged or they could use something and you feel like God is leading you to go over there and speak. Is He really Lord over your life? Will you do what He tells you to do or are you needing the approval of men and you're fearful of their criticism more than you are committed to the Lordship of God? Are there times that we just back away when we know what the truth is, but we're afraid that if we speak the truth, somebody's going to call us a religious fanatic or make fun of us because we believe that killing babies is wrong and we're pro-life more than pro-choice? Are there people that are afraid to stand up and speak the truth? I can guarantee you there are because I deal with a lot, a lot of people. And you know what? That's not making Jesus the Lord of your life. You need to come to a place to where you not only take advantage of His salvation and ask Him for His forgiveness of sins, but you need to come to that place to where you make Him Lord. And you just say, Father, whatever it is that you want, that's what I want. Now, I've been describing the necessity of making Jesus Lord, but I haven't really described how you go about doing it. And so how do you go about accomplishing this? How do you move from where you are to where basically it's you running your life 
and you turn it over to uh, God controlling it, the first step, I believe, is to first of all see the necessity of it. I've just been talking about how this needs to be an absolute foundational truth for every Christian. This isn't just for the full-time preachers or the super saints. This is for Joe Blow Christian. You need to run up a white flag and make an absolute surrender to the Lord. So first of all, you have to see the necessity of it. Until you see the need, you won't ever do this. As long as people think that they can handle everything on their own, they will. So you know what? You need to come to the end of yourself. Some people come to that easier than others. You don't always have to crash and burn and destroy your life and be in a total mess before you realize that you need God. I've given you my personal testimony. When I was 18 years old, this came to me by revelation. I was relatively living a good life and everything was going good in my life compared to most people. I hadn't had major tragedies. And yet, just by revelation, God showed me my need for Him. And I made that commitment and boom, my life changed. But you have to come to that place where you are absolutely convinced that you can't run your life successfully on your own and that you must yield yourself to God. You need to let God show this to you by revelation so you don't have to crash and burn and be flat of your back so that the only way you can look is up. There's a better way to come to the end of yourself than to just destroy your life. So you need to first of all come to that place. Then the second thing is you need to recognize that God wants you to come to a place of making Him Lord in your life more than you want it. Now that's important. Because sometimes people get this impression that, oh God, I need this, and then they feel that God is somehow or another disconnected from them and disinterested in what's going on in your life and that you've got to plead and yell and beg with the Lord and somehow or another turn God towards you. I want you to know that God loves you, not only as your Savior who wants to forgive your sins and give you entrance into heaven, but God knows that you can't run your own life. He's the one that wrote Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. He knows that you aren't sharp enough to direct your own self. He created you to be God-dependent. There is a God-shaped vacuum on the inside of every single person. You need Him in your life, and He knows it. So, the second thing to recognize is that God wants this more than you want it. Now, I think that's important because that will cause you to believe that when you make a commitment and when you begin to humble yourself, that God will accept it, that you don't have to plead with Him or search for Him, that He's already been searching for you. And then I want to read this passage to you. I believe it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Nope, must be 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, for, the, for which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now this is an important passage of Scripture. I'm breaking right into the middle of a thought, but I want to focus on this point where he says that God is able to keep that which I commit unto him against that day. God keeps what you commit. No committing, no keeping. Many of us would just like the Lord to come down and say, Oh, God, make me yield to you. 
you know what? That wouldn't be a true commitment on your part. That would be God taking away your free will and forcing something upon you. That would be slavery. You know, the Scriptures, Paul talks about being a slave to the Lord, but it's a love slave. It's a voluntary slavery. God doesn't want to be dictator in the sense that it's just, you do what I say and shut up. It's not that way at all. God loves us and He wants to lead us because He knows better what you need and how to accomplish it than you do. But it's all out of love. God is not going to force Him being Lord on you. Now there's coming a day that He will. Scripture says over in Philippians chapter 2 that there is coming a day where every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And they're going to have the full understanding of what lordship means. Did you know that Hitler, that every person who has ever renounced God and ever has you know, acted contrary to what the Word says, every vile person that rejected God here on this earth, when they see the glory and the majesty of God, everybody, even those that have rebelled at Him, are going to fall on their face and they're going to bow the knee and say that Jesus is Lord. But you know what, if they have to make that decision only when they see Him in eternity, if you don't make that decision while you're alive here on this earth, then even though you bow the knee and say that He's Lord, you're going to be destined to an eternal separation from God that we call hell. You're going to be in punishment, reaping the consequences of your own decisions. Everybody is going to make uh, Jesus Lord sooner or later, but you've got to do it in this life to really prosper and enter into eternity, and to enjoy this life. And you are the one that have to make that decision. You don't have to wait until God appears in all of His glory and until you've got perfect knowledge. You can do it right now, and you can make this decision and say, Jesus, I want to make you my Lord. And I will grant you this, that I've dealt with some people along these issues that they see the necessity of it, they have a desire for it, but it's not with all of their heart. And so there are some people that if I was to just, you know, if you were right here in front of me and if I could somehow or another just say, all right, do you agree? Do you need to make Jesus Lord? There would be some people who would agree and want it and desire it, but the truth is they still are so in love with themselves. They just haven't reached the end of it yet. And they aren't ready to make that total, absolute, unconditional surrender to God. So with some people, it's a process. But even if you are one that aren't to that place yet to where with all of your heart, with zero reservations, you're willing to just turn things over and make Jesus absolute Lord. If you aren't at that place, you can begin the process by still just committing and saying, Lord, this is what I want. I may not mean it with all of my heart right now, but I want to mean it with all of my heart. I want you to be Lord. I run up the white flag. I surrender as much as I have within me. I am yielding myself to you. Some people who have been prepared and who are ready, this could be a cataclysmic encounter with God where I mean boom like that. You just notice a tremendous change. That's the way that it came to pass in my life. With other people, you might just begin the process and it's going to take a week a month, or I don't know what period of time before you actually get to a place to where with all of your heart you mean it and you receive the full benefit of it. But nonetheless, you can't get there any quicker than to start right now. 
The point I'm trying to say is that you first of all have to know your need. You have to recognize God wants this more than you want it. And then you just have to start in that direction. And it's not just a one-time thing. Now with me, I made a one-time commitment and there were zero reservations. And I meant it with all of my heart. And I've never had to go back and recommit. But I have. You know, I just didn't understand the totality of what I was saying. I didn't understand all of the decisions. And you're going to come up against decisions the rest of your life that will test whether or not you really meant that Jesus is absolute Lord and dictator in your life. And you're going to have to go back and say, you know what, I made that commitment this day and praise God, I am still going to hold to it. It's not just a one-time decision. It's a decision you make one time and head in that direction, but it's a process. And every one of us is in the process of yielding more and more to the Lordship of Jesus. But I want to encourage you today that it's your choice. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, He says, Behold, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. You could say it this way, that He set before us running our own life or yielding it to Him. It's your choice. And then He tells you, choose life that you may live. God even gives you the answer to this pop quiz. He told you to choose life. God wants you to choose Him as being your Lord because that's good for you. It's good for the kingdom. You running your own life is like an infant driving a Mack truck. It's not smart. You aren't capable. You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus to be the absolute Lord over your life. Man, that's powerful.